0: Will you pray with me, Heavenly Father, as we remain in your presence, I, I pray that you would do a work in our hearts, um, Father, rest- restilling in us just a sense of anticipation for what is to come. Um, Father, as we enter into this season, I-, I know for a lot of us there is so much that's happening over the next few weeks, the busyness and um, God, just all that the, this season is, and, and I pray that in these moments this morning that you would um, calm our hearts, uh, cause us to not be distracted by anything that's going on around us or just in the world around us and the, the, the things that we could um, so, so easily begin to focus on this morning. Father, I pray that we would be able to hear from you. And we are here because of who you are and what you've done for us. And I pray that through the work of your Holy Spirit, you would continue to transform us and help us to become more and more like our Savior, Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. That's good to see everybody this morning. Um, We are going to begin our Christmas series today called Joyful Anticipation. So you've got that to look forward to in just a minute. Um, For those of you that are guests with us, thanks for being here. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, my name is Bill and it's my privilege to serve as a lead pastor here at the table. If you're new, you may not know exactly what to expect when you walk into a new church, maybe wondering what we're all about and things like that. And what I would say at this moment, like what we would love to see happen in your life while you are a part of the table, is that we would love to see your faith come alive. And what I mean by that is that we want to see your faith not be something that you just do when you show up at church on a Sunday morning, but that it begins to be something that guides everything in your life. Um, And so hopefully you'll hear a little bit about that in the message this morning. Um, If you are a guest and have never done so, we would love to connect with you. And the easiest way to do that is to text the word WELCOME to 817-755-1668, and um, we'll just... Uh, connect with you that way, get some information so that we can follow up with you and and find out how we could potentially minister to you and your family, Um, because we are excited that you're here and glad that you're a part of our service this morning, and and again, we want to be able to serve you um, outside of just this morning as well. So I don't know about you. I can very much, very fondly remember the building of the anticipation for the coming of Christmas when I was a kid. It seemed like it started right as soon as Thanksgiving dinner was over. Um, I began looking forward to Christmas, which seemed like it would never get here. Uh, I can remember, it seemed like it was a daily occurrence to get out the Sears wish book and look through that to make sure that I hadn't missed anything that I could want to put on my Christmas list. And I know we've got some a lot, probably lots of people that are younger um, than me, and maybe you never got to the chance to experience this year's wish book, and you're not even sure what that's all about. It is a catalog. It used to be delivered to your house that had anything and everything that anyone could ever want for Christmas. Josh, the toy section was two inches thick at least, and so I would go through that every single day to make sure I didn't miss something, or just to look at the toys that I would circled and put on my Christmas list, imagining what it would be like to play with those things on Christmas morning. And the anticipation built, and it seemed like Christmas would never come, but I couldn't wait until what it would be like on Christmas morning to run downstairs and see what had been left under the Christmas tree. Now, don't misunderstand me. I still love Christmas. I love spending time with family. I'll be honest, I still like getting new stuff um, at Christmas. But yet at the same time, the anticipation is not the same. Where at a time it seemed like Christmas would never come, now it seems like between Thanksgiving and Christmas are about 48 hours. Um, And so you blink and then they're gone. So the anticipation doesn't build like it used to and at some point... Like the bell stops ringing. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. In the Polar Express movie, Little Boy, his wish for Christmas is to get a bell off of Santa's sleigh. And so he goes Christmas morning under the tree, unwraps the present, pulls out the bell from Santa's sleigh, and he shakes it. and he hears the glorious ringing of that sleigh bell. But mom and dad don't hear anything. Because to hear the sound of the bell, you have to believe in the magic of Christmas. And for them, the magic of Christmas was gone. I was thinking about it, and and my experience with the waning anticipation of Christmas, I think can parallel what happens a lot in our experience of living a life of faith. Now, not everybody's this way, but I do think that this is the experience for many, many people. That when you first come to faith in Christ, you're so excited about what God is going to do for you and through you and in you. I mean, you're ready to take on the world for Jesus. But then over time, some of that anticipation for what God is going to do in your life begins to fade. With the realities of life, it's just like... You lose some of that. And it doesn't mean that you don't enjoy your relationship with God. It doesn't mean that you don't recognize the blessings of God that do come into your life. But yet at the same time, it's just a recognition that though there are some ups in life, it's also filled with a lot of downs. And that's just the way that it is. And I have to be honest with you, my personality, it's pretty melancholy. I can kind of end up there a lot of times too. And so here's what I want to do for us throughout this series. I want us to regain just a little bit of a sense of anticipation for what God can do, because He's still at work around us. And so as we begin our series today, we're going to go all the way back to the beginning. So we're going to be looking at Genesis chapter 3, verses 8 through 15 this morning. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn there, Genesis chapter 3. Verses 8-15, if you don't have a Bible with you, it will be on the screen as I read it here in just a second. Or, uh, if you are a Version Bible app user, you can navigate your way to our live event and follow along there. There's the notes that are in there, the scripture, there's some questions for reflection and discussion, um, lots of helpful things in there. But the section that we're looking at, we're actually going to look at a little bit before the section that I'm going to read and a little bit after the section that I'm going to read too. Um, we're looking at kind of a, a larger section this morning. But it's what is often referred to as the cursing of Adam and Eve after they ate the forbidden fruit. And so we're going to look at this, and it is going to describe the realities of life. But yet at the same time, tucked in the middle is a promise. And if you're not looking for it, you'll miss it. But there is a promise that gives us hope and a reason for anticipation. So let me read for us, our text this morning, Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. So, this is just after they had eaten that forbidden fruit. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees in the garden. So, the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So, I hid. Then he asked, who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock. And More than any wild animal, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. In a moment, everything changed for Adam and Eve. As soon as they ate that forbidden fruit, sin entered into the world, and everything was different. And I wonder how they processed that event. Did they think that life had been ruined or did they understand that in that moment they ruined life not just for themselves but for every human being that would live after them, including you and me? I wonder if they thought maybe they could get away with it and God would never know. Kind of like the kid who knocks over mom's favorite vase and then tries to glue it back together. And it's still like super wonky, but like, oh, maybe mom will never know. We have no way of knowing this really, but I think that they thought they really had ruined everything. I think in those moments, they thought all hope was lost. But here's the incredible thing, God still came to the garden. What an incredible thing to think about that in those moments where we really mess up, God still came to the garden. To understand the effects of sin and and all that we read in there and then the results of that sin that we'll talk about in just a minute, I think it's really helpful for us to imagine what life was like before loss. What life was like before sin entered into the world. I'll be honest, I think it's hard for us to imagine what a Perfect existence was like because all we know is life lived in a world that has been wrecked by sin. So we can come up with some things, but yet at the same time, what it was in reality far exceeds anything that we could ever think about or imagine. But think about it imagine what life would be like if every time you got a piece of furniture from IKEA, you got every single step. Right, and never had pieces left over at the end that you wondered, well, what are these supposed to do? Or what would it be like if every time you tried a new recipe, it turned out exactly the way that it was supposed to? Or moms and dads, imagine what it would be like if your kids always brought home straight A's and never complained about what to eat or uh, that they were bored Or what their sibling was doing to them. Like they just never complained at all. Imagine what that kind of existence would be like. And then think, okay, it's even better than that. Whatever it was, it was far better than that. And then sin entered the picture. Some of you might be aware of what took place. The serpent showed up and began to tempt Eve. And he said to her, did God say that you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Which was ridiculous. Eve said, well, no, that's not what God said, because God said we can eat from every tree in the garden except for the tree in the center of the garden, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, if we eat it. And then she said, also, if we touch it, we will die. That's not what's going to happen. See, the reason that God said he, he didn't want you to eat of that tree is because if you eat of that tree, then you'll be like God, and he doesn't want you to be like him. And so for the very first time, Adam and Eve began to think to themselves, well, maybe what God said isn't actually the truth. Maybe it's not that God is protecting us from something, but he's keeping something from us. Maybe we're better off on our own. And then the text tells us, if we were to go back and read it, that for the very first time they looked at that fruit. And saw that it would be good for food and was good for giving wisdom. And so Eve took some and ate it and handed it to her husband, Adam, who was standing right there with her. And in that moment, everything changed. Their eyes were open. They realized they were naked. And so they went and sewed fig leaves together for clothing to hide their shame. But even in the midst of that, God still came to the garden. Where we began reading in, in verse 8, it says that the Lord God walked in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. Now, I think for a long time, I'd always thought this. uh, This was always assumed that God came to the garden in the evening because he kind of had this appointment with Adam and Eve that they walked together in the garden every evening. Like we read later in the book of Genesis, Enoch walked with God. Um, So there was that kind of thing. But in, in, in truth, it may not have been that way because what the word that we read translated evening breeze could also be in the storm and so it's entirely possible that god showed up in the storm And so you got to think about this. Well, why did Adam and Eve hide? They saw God or they heard God coming in the midst of the storm. And so they hid. And it wasn't so much that they were afraid of the storm, like afraid of the tornado and the destruction that it might bring. But it's more the idea of like kids knowing mom and dad are home and now we're busted. Now, from God's perspective, it wasn't like trying to make Adam and Eve scared, but it was to remind them of who he actually was. So God showed up in the garden. Adam, where are you? And he didn't hear any response. God said, Adam... I can see you. You are not hiding very well. It's like a a three-year-old who's learning to play hide-and-seek for the very first time, and they think that they can sit out in the middle of the room, and as long as they cover their eyes and can't see the person who's looking for them, like that's good enough, right? Like You can't hide from God. What were they thinking? But that's when the blame game started. Adam, did you eat from the tree that I told you not to eat from? Well, it's not my fault. She gave some to me, and you gave her to me so really whose fault is this he said don't look at me it was the serpent he tempted me and so I ate it so really the devil made me do it you can't blame me sin entered into the world and life was ruined we started the first section of this cursing that was given to the serpent First, in verse 14, the Lord addresses the serpent. He says, because you've done this, you're cursed above the livestock more than any wild animals. We'll actually come back to that section in just a minute. He then addresses the woman and finally addresses Adam in the last section. And we'll look at those in just a second as well. Here's what I want you to know. Where life was once perfect, as a result of sin entering into the world, it would be filled with problems. And so God begins addressing Eve, and he says, he says this first in verse 16, I will intensify your labor pains. You will bear children with painful effort. And the idea here is that what, what was designed to be something that was filled with joy, a joyful experience, would become worry-filled. The reason I say that is that word for Uh, pain is far more often used of emotional pain than it is physical pain. So it's not so much the act of giving birth as much as it is the emotional pain that comes with giving birth and raising children. See, as image bearers of God, God said to humanity, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. And so having children was meant to be a joyful reminder of our role as image bearers. But as a result of the fall, it would become something that would be filled with fear and anxiety and worry. And I will tell you that in the last couple of weeks of a pregnancy, when you take your wife to the doctor for what is supposed to be a normal checkup, and the doctor says, hey, I don't think anything is wrong, but you should probably go straight to the hospital. Listen, you begin to live out the realities of that verse. It was our experience when Nathan was born. So what was meant to be joyful was going to be worry-filled. The next thing that he says to Eve, he addresses the relationship between Adam and Eve in marriage. He says, your desire will be for your husband, yet he will rule over you. Again, I think it's important to understand the picture of marriage before the fall. What we read in Genesis 2 as God brings Adam and Eve together, I think it was a perfect partnership where they were always on the same page about everything. But now, as a result of the fall, sin entering that picture, what was once meant to be harmonious was going to be filled with disunity. Eve would have her desire. She would want to do her thing. Adam would want his way all the time. And so there would be conflicts between the two of them. And really what the culprit was, what was underneath all of that, was selfishness. So, again, in this marriage, what was meant to be harmonious would be filled with disunity and problems. And then he addresses Adam in verse 17. He says to the man, Because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, don't eat. The ground is cursed because of you. You will eat of it by means of painful labor all the days of your life. It will produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. You will eat bread by the sweat of your brow. And so as God addresses Adam, primarily what he's talking about is his relation to the earth and specifically his work. And so what was meant to be something that was fulfilling would become problem filled. And so what God is addressing, we could look at it very literally, But it also works metaphorically, too, because with Adam as a farmer, the ground would produce weeds, but there's something greater than that that God is communicating as well. And I think what God is saying is where work was meant to be fulfilling, again, image bearers of God, part of what God said that humanity was fill the earth and subdue it so we were to rule over creation in God's place, and it was meant to be a fulfilling experience, it would just become exhausting, Because as soon as one problem is solved, two more take its place, and life would be exhausting. And then God said, you know what else, Adam? At some point, you're going to die. At some point, you're going to return to the ground that you came from. Like, think about this from Adam's perspective. We start with this idea of joyful anticipation. But God says to Adam, here's what your life is going to be like. It's going to be filled with problems. You'll never solve them all. And at some point, Adam, you're going to die. But that wasn't even the worst part. Because the worst part was that they would be separated from God. Adam and Eve were forced to leave the garden. This was the paradise that God had created for them. This was the place where they had come to know God. They had visited with God. They had met with God in this place, but they had to leave, and they could never go back. Now, I want you to imagine if that was all life was, one problem after another, and the only end to those problems is death. In some ways, it's not hard to imagine, because that is the life experience for many, many people. An exhausting, problem-solving experience that never ends until you die, and there is no more. But there is more, because in the midst of this Message of the cursing and this new reality that we would have to experience as a result of sin, there was a promise. And a promise brings hope and hope brings a reason for anticipation. That's why we've got to go back to what God said to the serpent in verse 15. He says, I will put hostility between you and the woman. Uh, It's hostility, enmity, or strife. Like there would be this struggle between your offspring and her offspring. Basically, what God is saying is that there would always be a struggle between good and evil. It would be an ongoing throughout human history. But then he said, He will sh- strike your head and you will strike his heel. What is in that is a promise that one day the seed of the woman would come to make everything right. One day there was a Messiah, a Savior, who was going to come and finally defeat sin and evil Forever. Like, that was the promise. They had something to look forward to because one day a Savior would come. And here's the great thing. The Messiah did come. That's what Christmas is all about. It's celebrating the birth of our Savior Jesus who came to make everything right. I try to be really careful with this. I try not to say that Jesus came... And he died on the cross so that we could go to heaven. Now, did Jesus die so that we could get to heaven? Yes. But his death is far more significant than just that. It accomplished more than just that. Yes, Jesus died so that by faith in him, we could have eternal life. But the purpose of God through the crucifixion was to reconcile all things to himself through Jesus' death on the cross. And so Jesus came, yes, so that we could have life after death, but also at the same time, he came to provide us a better way to live. So he changes how we live. And so I talked about like, these new realities that we experience as a result of sin entering into the world, and I want you to know that Jesus is the answer for all of those things that we experience Because of sin, there is an experience of life, the realities of life, but yet at the same time, because Jesus came, we can experience something different. Let me show you what I mean. With childbearing, where it was meant to be this joyful experience, it would become worry filled, but the answer is found in Jesus, Philippians 4. Don't worry about anything, but in everything, pray. 1 Peter 5, 7, cast all your cares, your burdens, your worries on him because he cares for you. So the reality is, yes, in the midst of this life, the struggles that we go through in this life, we will have things that will cause us to worry. But yet at the same time, we don't go through those things alone anymore. That we have a Savior who understands us and is willing to take those burdens from us and carry them for us. In marriage, where it was meant to be this perfect partnership that's marked by disunity as a result of sin, again, we find that in Jesus we can get harmony back. Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is writing in this letter, and he says, hey, don't just think about your own interests, but put the needs of others first. Then in verse 5, he says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. And so where naturally we want to be selfish and we want to get our own way, it is Jesus and his example that helps us to see how to be selfless. And as he does a work in our hearts, we can become more like him and become more selfless. In relation to our work, it's Jesus that gives us new purpose. When Jesus called Peter to be his disciple, he said, follow me and I will make you a fisher of men. So, this new purpose that we have, it's not just what we do here on earth where you know people are gonna forget about us and forget about the things that we're going to that, that we accomplish in this life, but we can have an eternal impact by pointing people back to Jesus. And again, it gets even better than that. We talked about the inevitability of death before, but death is not the end. First Corinthians 15 talks about the significance of of the resurrection. And what's really interesting, this is a different picture, I think, than we get a lot of times because it's talking about the resurrection of the body. It's not just that when we go to heaven, we'll be disembodied floating spirits, but the end isn't that we return to dust, but one day God's going to take those dust particles and put them back together again, that there is something else that is coming. We will experience resurrection. Our bodies will be made new because of the work of Jesus for us. And then we will finally and ultimately be reconciled with God. It's this incredible picture in Revelation 21, Revelation 21.3. 21, we will be with God, and he will, we will be with God. He will be with us, and we will be his people, right? It's this picture of ultimate reconciliation. Because of the work of Jesus, we are reconciled to God now, but yet in the future, at some point, there is going to be this ultimate reconciliation where we will be with God. See, that's the reason for anticipation, because something better is coming. And our responsibility now, as we live in between these two worlds, like we're Jesus did something so we can experience something better, but yet we know something better is ultimately coming for us. Our responsibility as we live in between these two worlds is to live like that thing that is better is already here. And that's why, in the midst of the ups and downs of life, we have hope and can anticipate that God is still going to do something in our lives because He is still at work. And it's through the person and work of Jesus that we recognize that we can have a better life here and now. And and so, what I want to challenge you with today is to go back through that list of the, the new realities that we face and the answers that we have in Jesus and ask yourself are you experiencing the answers in Jesus? Or now, for those of us who are followers of Jesus, are you still experiencing that old reality? Because God wants to do something to transform us so that we don't live according to that reality anymore, but we live according to the work of Jesus for us. And that's why, again, though we will face challenges and difficulties in this life, we can't lose sight of what God is doing. There is a reason for joyful anticipation Because God is still at work in us and around us as we await the day that we will ultimately be reconciled to him forever. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we finish up this morning, I do pray that you would reveal in our lives those areas where we're falling short of what you desire for us. Because, God, I think maybe we're still living, many of us still living under a curse. We don't have to anymore because of Jesus. And so, Father, in areas of our lives where we're filled with worry, help us to trust in you, to know that you are in control of everything, to know that you understand what it's like to be us in the midst of our fears. And, Father, may we give those burdens over to you so that you can carry them for us. Father, in our marriages and families and relationships, may they not be marked by disunity, but the harmony that comes from selflessness, living out that mind of Jesus. Help us to realize that death isn't the end. Something far better awaits us, that one day we will be reconciled with you forever. So Father, as we await that day, help us to live in joyful anticipation of how you are going to be at work in us and around us. Father, help us to not lose hope, but to remember the coming of the one who would make everything right. I think about what Hebrews says. said, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of of God. Let us consider him who endured such things so that we would not grow weary and lose heart. Help us not to grow weary. Help us not to lose heart. Help us to maintain anticipation for what you are going to do in us and around us as you transform us and make us more like our Savior Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray.